belonging into your bank account. Like how many people really, probably out of guilt, out of shame, out of ignorance, not wanting to just deal with the reality of what is happening today with their money. Welcome, everybody, to The Chris Harder Show, where we are making you unapologetic about your pursuit of success, knowing that when good people like you make good money, they can then do great things. My name is Chris Harder, and several times per week, I will bring you epic guests, solo episodes, and every single tool, trick, and skill set you need to grow your business, grow your money mindset, and to grow your wealth to levels that you have never reached before. I've ended up in a unique place in life where I've got the experience, the connections, and all of the secrets that it takes to be successful. And I'm lifting the curtain to reveal it all to you in an effort to help put you in a position of abundance so great that you can then be as generous as possible. So let's lock arms and let's get started. Hey, everybody, welcome back to The Chris Harder Show, where we absolutely believe that both prosperity and generosity can and must coexist. And we are going to sit down and interview an incredible example of that today. We're going to sit down with Rachel Cruz. Now, Rachel Cruz is the number one New York Times bestselling author, financial expert, and host of The Rachel Cruz Show, which is a wildly popular podcast on personal finance. But she's also known as Dave Ramsey's daughter. Yes, Dave Ramsey, the famous financial guru, Dave Ramsey. And so we are going to sit down and talk about all things personal finance. It's funny because Rachel actually hated budgeting for years until she experienced the freedom of budgeting for herself. Rachel now uses everything that she's learned from her family growing up to share fun, practical ways to take control of your money and create a life that you love. So we're going to dive in and we're going to talk about what it was like growing up in a household that was literally famous for financial advice and the pressures that might have come along with that. We're going to talk about the four childhood classrooms that shape your view of money. We'll get into best tips for couples uh, to avoid fighting over money. And then we're going to talk about what to do if you just feel absolutely financially destitute. You don't even want to look at it. You got shame around it. How can you feel comfortable taking that first step to repair your finances. Of course, we're going to touch on her new book, New York Times bestselling book, Know Yourself, Know Your Money, and where there's even a generous giveaway at the end that you're not going to want to miss. Now, one of the things that we know about money is that the more positively you view it, the more it seems to work in your favor. It works for us. It works for Lori and I. I wake my wife Lori up to a positive mantra every single morning. And one day she said to me, she goes, this helps so much, you should send it to everyone. Like literally, you should wake other people up to this. And so I decided I will. So listen, if you want me to wake up and text you a positive perspective around money or around business every single day to start your morning, then text me the word daily to 310-421-0416. It's totally free, no strings attached. I literally am just kind of spreading goodness to help you start your day with a better perspective. So if you want my morning mantras, text the word daily to 310-421-0416. Now get ready, listen up, take some notes, because this episode is literally a life changer for your finances. All right, Rachel, welcome to the show. Glad you're on. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Totally my pleasure. So I'd love to start with this. Uh, in your new book, 
And by the way, congratulations. It's an awesome book. Know yourself, know your money. And we're going to get to the book in a little bit. But in your new book, you teach that our view of money is shaped by what we learn and see as a child. And by the way, I totally agree. Now, you grew up in a rather unique household when it comes to finances. Uh, Your father is Dave Ramsey. So would you ever start by diving into this concept of how we grow up, our childhood shapes our, our view of money and how your unique upbringing in a home that concentrated on finances so much maybe shaped your view of money in the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think our home growing up, you know, a lot of a lot of um, therapists will say this, but it's true that it's your classroom, right? So it's where you learn all of life. And when you leave home, you kind of decide, okay, these are lessons. Some of these lessons I want to take with me into adulthood and apply them. Some lessons I wish we could, I, I want to unlearn, right? It was, it was terrible. You know, we all have those. So kind of understanding, okay, this is how my parents did it. This is what shaped my worldview. This is really the foundation of my life. And then as an adult, I can choose to use some of those tools or not. And so for me, I mean, honestly, Chris, I kind of feel like I grew up in this financial bubble because my entire life, I mean, honestly, since my earliest memory, you know, we were never given an allowance as kids, as an example, we were always on commission. Yeah. So for me, money, you get money if you work. And that was ingrained in me at five years old. Like you weren't just given money unless it was your birthday or Christmas. And it, you know, you get a check from your grandparents, but like, besides that, you want money, you got to work for it. And, and that you never, if you don't have the money, you don't buy it. And so learning that, learning that you save up and you pay for things. So I had to pay for half of my car when I turned 16. And so you know, there's all these like little things that wove through my story growing up. So then when I went to college is when I tell people my little bubble popped and I realized, oh, wow, this is not normal. Like, this is so weird. Sure. Like the way I grew up and the way my parents did money was so different than other people. And so I see it as a huge gift. I mean, I really do think the intentionality my parents put towards teaching us how many works. They didn't make it a God. It was not obsessive, nothing like that. But it was enough that allowed me at 18 to understand things like a mutual fund, right? All these simple things I took for granted, but man gave me such power. But the, but the thing about money is it's not just the knowledge. We say it's about 20% head knowledge, it's 80% behavior. Totally so then it was agree. up to me. Yeah, up to me to apply that knowledge in my life and now with my marriage and my own kids and all of that. So there's a level of personal responsibility. I don't get this pass in life because I'm Dave Ramsey's kid, but I do see the gift and kind of that up, that step up I got from just the knowledge standpoint and, and seeing it play out in my family. Even when you grow up in a great household that, that gives you great guidance, um, a lot of times, like you said, it's 80% personality, 80, 80% behavior that's really going to control what you do and don't do. And one of the th- trends we see, not always, but sometimes when people grow up in too strict of a, a relate, uh, household, they'll They'll act out at first, or if they grow yep. up into loose, then they'll, that they'll cling towards boundaries and rules. You grew up in a pretty financially regimented household. Did you have any part of you that wanted to rebel at first or, or have opposite beliefs? Or were you just like bought in from day one? Well, here's the funny thing is, honestly, they, I mean, by, by value system, you could say they were regimented. But with us kids, they let us make lots of mistakes. Like oh, I cool. bounced three checks in my checking account at 15. No way. That's <laughs> yes. awesome. And got the overdraft um, letter and everything. And my dad at 15 made me go down to the bank. My mom drove me. I remember this. And I had to go talk to the branch manager of the bank and apologize to him for lying because I told him I had money in his bank to spend and I didn't. 
and I wrote those checks as if I had money and that was a lie. Like, I mean, isn't that funny? But so kind of an intense consequence. But oh yeah, but and then he knew because we would we would track my checking out and, and you know and I knew like yeah you had eight dollars but I went to like Hollister or something sure, like whatever fifteen sure. year old girls shop at oh yeah and I like and I wrote a check and oh yeah the whole thing but the branch manager had so, to be dying they, he had to be he or she had to be holding oh, back yeah. laughing well he waived my overdraft fee actually <laughs> <laughs> so that was a gift <laughs> that's pretty so, yeah awesome. so they like I mean so they let us kind of make these mistakes here and there so for that I am so grateful so that's a that's a huge part of of learning and what a gift too for parents out there listening to let your kids make these inexpensive harmless financial mistakes under your roof and protection yeah versus the first time they're making mistakes to your point if you're so legalistic and you're so controlling that they're not able to make mistakes and the first time they make a mistake is on a car lot yeah. at 22 years old. I mean, that is more devastating, right? So, so making those mistakes, yeah, I think is a huge part of learning. It's a great point. And what a cool tip for parents out there. Let them make the smaller mistakes because the big ones, right? Maybe too much college debt or maybe uh, buying that new car when they shouldn't. Those are tougher to recover from. That's a great point. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. So kids growing up in this day and age, um, I have no idea what, you know, what age you grew up, but I'm 43 for context. I didn't have social media. I didn't have all these other influence. I pretty much had what was going on at school for seven or eight hours and then what was going on mm-hmm. at home. And now kids are seeing social media, uh, You know, people in high school supposedly making a million dollars and betting big on crypto and all these other crazy things that just wasn't a thing. When I, Maybe the, the most ambitious thing I saw growing up in high school was like Tony Robbins in the middle of the night telling me I can you know, have something huge, right? And so with kids being consumed by social media, you had a video recently on, on your Instagram that I absolutely loved. And this video in particular talked about how social media influences the way we deal with money and of course, our budgets. Would you mind talking on this a little bit? Yes, um, man, it, it, is, it has changed the way I think we do life. And so there's the emotional element of social media and what it brings, not just to teenagers and all of that, which I can't even imagine being a teen, right? So for context for me, I had to, I, we did have Facebook, but you had to have a college email address. Okay. So getting into college for my generation was a big deal. Cause yeah, it was college, but you got a college email address, which means you got to sign up for Facebook. <laughs> like that was like the big, that That's was the funny. big deal. But yeah. So, I mean, I see that emotional toll and, and for adults, we get that. I'm like the comparison game we all know, right. Is played all the time and we see what's going on, but there's also this instant gratification that we get because of not just social media, but technology. Like just from information, being able to do things like, I mean, I booked a beach trip for our family, literally from my phone. I sat there and booked the hotel, booked reservations, did the flights on the Southwest app. Like, I mean, from my phone, all in probably 15, 20 minutes. I mean, like everything is just so quick. And so what that does is I think that that really blends into our spending habits as well. And that idea of delayed gratification is so much harder because of technology. But but yeah, but social media, I mean, it plays into the comparison. It plays into seeing things that we normally wouldn't have seen ever, a product or whether it's a trip or a car or a piece of clothing that you never would have seen otherwise because it's posted by somebody on the other side of the world or country that you don't even know. Yeah. So yeah, it just influences so much. And we and I don't think it's a hundred percent terrible. You know, I'm not I'm on it. I'm sure. not just like absolutely bashing it. But having common sense boundaries with it, I think is really, really important, but it's hard because it, it changes our brain. I mean, right. All the science coming out about it is just, 
it's all pretty much negative of what it does to us. So we do have to be really, really careful. Yeah, it's really true. In that video, you had mentioned 130 million Instagram users click on a shop icon per month. Not per year, not, not in total, per month. I was blown away. So how do we... How do we develop that restraint a little bit? Because it is so accessible. Like you said, it is so easy to make that emotional purchase. And we're probably only surfing social media when we're maybe in a vulnerable or emotional board mood. Do you have any tips around that? Yeah, I would say a couple of things. One, one filter I've learned to use just for myself personally is that question, if nobody sees this purchase, do I still want it? Mm. So if nobody sees the pair of Good. shoes I'm going to buy, do it, if nobody sees the you, know, you fill in the blank. Do I still want it? Because a lot of our buying is for affirmation from others, right? And yep. so being careful with that. I mean, the old school rule, but it's just true, is, is waiting 24 hours. And so what I do, I got in the habit, I'll put it in the cart. <laughs> it sounds crazy, but it's true. But I won't press purchase. I won't like, yeah. I won't buy it. I'll just put it in the cart. So I have it. And then I wait a day or two and then I'll go back. And more than half the time, I mean, probably 70% of the time, I'm like, oh no, I don't need that shirt. Okay, and I'll take it out. Sure. But then there's another 30%. That I'm like, oh, no, that's great. And the sale is still going on or the or I have the money in the budget, whatever it is, I'll buy it and it's fine. But really taking the emotion out of the purchase is so key. Because just like you said, when you're buying, it's you're usually lonely, sad, bored. You fill in the blank of the emotion. And that's that Band-Aid that covers it, not dealing with the real issue. And then the dopamine hit, everything's exciting. You feel good. So of course you're going to buy. And so when you remove all of that and give space and time, it's not as exciting anymore. And so it can cause you to have a second a second opinion. I love the 24-hour rule. And you're better than me because I always put it in the cart and then abandon it, hoping or counting on them retargeting me. So <laughs> I'm putting in there <laughs> yeah. thinking I'm making a good move, but also in the back of my head saying, okay, I know they're going to retarget me and, and maybe it'll all happen to have my wallet at that time. So another thing I came across that, that I really like that you put out there is, is the amount of free content and the amount, the amount of affordable content that you produce. And you've got something pretty cool I found. It's a 14-day money finder, basically. Mm-hmm. 14 days of tips on how to find more money. What are the, the best one or two tips in there that would surprise us? Where are some places we can free up some money? I'll do kind of the two opposite ends. So the easiest, but the one that still shocks me, Chris, and I mean... And I, I really am. I don't want to like shame anyone with it by any means, but I still am like, oh, wow. It's just logging into your bank account. Mm. Like how many people really probably out of guilt, out of shame, out of ignorance, not wanting to just deal with the reality of what is happening today with their money. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a lot of baggage that goes into that, right? It seems so simple, but, but people just don't even do it. And so like, so one of the tips is as easy as that. And for some people listening, like, oh, I do that twice a day. Mm-hmm. Some people are like, oh, God, I haven't done that in two weeks. But I don't even want to know. Yeah. And so it's something as as you know easy, quote unquote, as that. So probably one of the biggest things is is pretty tactical, but it's just true. It's just insurance. I have them shop two different insurance rates. And it's amazing. Insurance is one of those things that just goes on autopilot for a lot of people and they just pay their premiums and they just keep going with life. And they look up and it's been five or six years and they haven't re-looked at anything. And you you can save a lot just dollar-wise. Yeah. Just even with that simple move. So, so it's, it's, it's all in between there, but there's 14 really small things. And I do each tip or act is, is less than five minutes. I wanted it to be really quick and fast that people can do. Um, but yeah, you, you, end up, you end up finding a lot of money. Those are great tips because I'm guilty of both. I know that I've got <laughs> like reoccurring memberships if I were to actually go yes. examine it that I'm not using anymore. 
And I know I haven't shot my my car insurance or home insurance in, in forever. So those are great reminders. Where can we get the 14 tips? Where do we sign up? Yes, you can go to rachelcruz.com and there'll be there should be a placeholder there on that homepage for the 14-day money finder. Very cool. All right, so let's kind of shift modes into your book. I, I shouldn't say brand new book. It's been out for a little while, but congratulations. I hit New York Times thank bestseller, you. the whole nine yards, as it yes, should. Thank you. And uh, it's called Know Yourself, Know Your Money. And you state in this book that when you take a closer look at your behavior and beliefs, money problems are usually just a symptom of a larger problem in our life. Can, can you kind of unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, I've realized that money problems kind of masquerade themselves um, because of life problems. Mm-hmm. So your life problems really are the issue. So when you know, people say, well, I just, I just can't seem to live on a budget. Usually there's something else going on, a contentment issue, um, dealing with understanding that you got to live below your means. You know, I work with a lot of married couples and they're like, yeah, we, we have to have separate bank accounts because we just, we, we fight all the time. So we're going to just keep our money separate. There's probably a level of control or trust issues, right? Yeah. In the marriage. There. I mean, like, do you know what I'm saying? Like there's always kind of that deeper level and what it comes out of is what it comes out as is money problems, but dealing with the heart. And that's why one of the reasons I wrote this book is for 11 years of my career now, I've been focusing on the how-to of money. So I'm like, how to budget, how to get out of debt, how to save, how to invest, how to give, how to do these things. And that's very important. And you have to know those things in order to win. Mm -hmm. But if we don't go under that foundation of the why and like, why are we doing these things? Why are we having these problems? You're going to keep having those reoccurring issues and those habits that keep coming up. And so dealing with you yourself is such a big part of this journey. Yeah, it really is. You mentioned married couples. A lot of married couples listening. Uh, My wife's name is Lori. Lori and I do a monthly money date every single month where awesome. we go to one of our favorite restaurants or just a setting that we love. And it's just a state of the union. We're not there to solve any money problems. We're not there to get into an argument. It's literally a, let's look at the balance sheet. Let's find out, did net worth grow? Did it, did it go down? What was our income? And uh, it's more to keep each other abreast of what's going on. Because I feel like a lot of couples, one or the other tends to take care of the finances and the other one gets surprised. What tips do you have for married couples when it comes to money? Are there one or two things they should be doing to, to be successful? Because it's the biggest stress in a marriage. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Well, number one is what you, what you guys are doing. Like the fact you said that, I was like, yes, is sitting down and talking about it. And so you can go even more tactical, like a budget. So I tell people to do a budget once a month and do it with your spouse. And so you can do this whole state of the union thing, like you said, unpacking what's going on. And then you could get even more tactical. Okay, here's what we're going to spend this month. And here's what it looks like coming up. And so that in and of itself, if you can get to that, which I know is a big step yeah. for a lot of couples, but if you can just even get there, that, that will remove so many money fights and money problems you have. Because what happens is we miscommunicate and someone spends more on this and then the other one gets mad. This spouse feels like they have to hide a purchase from them. I mean, it gets super messy really fast. I mean, you can just lay it out clear and say, hey, here's, we both agree. Here's what it is. And it may take compromise, right? Someone wants to have more green fees for golf. Someone wants to shop a little bit more. I mean, whatever it is, like you got to kind of negotiate and figure it out and get to a place you both feel good about and say, okay, this, this is going to work. We're going to do this. And if something changes throughout the month, which it will, that's life. You text each other. My husband, and I do this all the time. I'm like, hey, literally this week, he's out of town for a few nights. I lined up three girls dinners with girlfriends each night after the kids go down. So I was like, Hey, I'm going to bump up the out to eat budget because I want to go out to nice dinners with my friends. Like, that's great. We'll just lower this, you know, and you just talk about it and you do it. And so 
it's amazing. Just that getting on the same page, you're, you're agreeing. And what you guys, you and Lori probably realized too, is that it's not just the money you end up talking about. It's the goals you hit. Yeah. It's the dreams you have. It's the fears that you kind of feel like are happening, but you know, it's, it's life. That's what ends up happening. We so. All, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I was say, we always end up on a conversation of dreaming. We're big dreamers together. And that always kind of springboards us into talking about things we could work towards in the future. It's, it's a no-brainer to do. Yeah, so that, so that would be my, my second point. So do that tactical budget meeting, talk about it on a monthly basis, and then that's it, is the dreaming thing. And, and I think so many couples, depending on your season of life, for my husband and I, we have three kids, six and under, and it is just like heads down, <laughs> dinner time, bath time, getting pajamas. I mean, you're just all over the place. And, and it's like you can just go day to day to day to day, and you don't look up and talk about the future. And that's Winston and I's favorite date is we'll do that. We'll just have conversation. We'll say, if money was no object, like, what do we want to do in the next five years? Like, how many trips question. to Disney World would we take? Yes. Yeah, like, what do we want to do? And you just have so much fun. Mm-hmm. So much fun when you can just freely talk about what's going on and what you want to do together. Because marriage is a team. Yeah. And I think so many couples, they, they see each other as like the enemy or with money. Money gets right in between them and they can't seem to get around it. Where I'm like, no, put the money issue over here. Lock arms. Say, how are we going to deal with that thing? Like, that's the enemy over there. Not my spouse. Yeah. That thing. And, and that team aspect and dreaming together does that. It unites you in such a beautiful way. And so, I mean, yeah, all of that, I think, really gives a level of, honestly, vulnerability and intimacy in a yeah. marriage. Yep. When you don't talk about these things and you just function almost like roommates, so separate yep. in this area of life, it, it can affect so many other areas of marriage. So coming together, I think, is a, it's a huge win for your marriage overall. Absolutely brilliant. Totally agree. Uh, while we're on the subject of, of- ways that money can be a stress. Uh, another thing I love about the book is that it addresses everyone's money fears. So talk to the person who hears this right now, single or married, doesn't matter. And mm-hmm. they're like, wait a minute, I can't even face my finances. I know they're bad. I haven't looked in months or years. Let's take fear and let's code it in shame. Like That's the donut that they're facing right now. Yeah. How does that person make a recovery? What's one or two things they can do when they're scared out of their mind? Absolutely. Um, I would say number one, in a weird way, try to reframe your fear and see it as a gift. Now, fear that goes to anxiety or it goes to where it paralyzes you and you can't make decisions, like that's not good. Yeah. But this initial fear that you're feeling like, uh, think about it. Okay, what is this trying to tell me? That's what fear initially is. It's your body's response that you are in need of something. So what is it telling you you need? Is it, yeah, I haven't checked my account because I'm scared I've over, you know, I'm overdrafting and I'm in the red. Okay, well, we need to check it and so we can help solve that problem, right? And like, like it really, it's telling you something. So getting down to that, I think is important. And also realizing that your net worth is not your self-worth. Yeah. And we live in a country and a culture, I should say, that man, you're, it's, it's, it, everyone applauds the grit and the grind and the raises and the success. Well, all that's not bad, but that's not the ultimate goal in life. And if that is your ultimate goal, there's a level of emptiness that ends up happening. Like when you don't, cultivate relationships in your life and have other means of life-giving things going on than just simply your bank account. Uh, it's Honestly, it's just going to be an empty life. Money is awesome and it's great, but it's like a magnifying glass. It's going to make you more of what you already are. And so to be able to say, okay, who am I that is working in this? And your identity is not in that bank account. It feels like it because the hard thing too is your bank account, Dr. John Deloney, he said this to me a few days ago and I was like, yes, because he said, your money is the one part of your life that has a number. Yeah. You can't quantify, I'm a good mom. 
Sure. There's not like a number for that, right? Or I'm a good yeah. wife or whatever it is. Um, but your your money has a number. It's like a and score kind of we've been dealt. It totally is. And it kind of sucks because it it's right there in front of you. And yeah. you're like, oh, that's I'm good or bad, or you know what I'm saying? So so removing all of that, which I know is so much easier said than done. Um, but when you can look at that fear as a gift and really press into what it's telling you on on the on more of a surface level, not the deep shame and guilt, right? Up here, what is it telling me? And also that this is not my identity. This is not my worth. This is not who I am. Yeah, this is that's really powerful because the reason people aren't looking is they feel like it's their identity. You know, m- yeah. my poor financial situation makes me bad or not smart or not reliable or not worthy, whatever their story is. And when you separate it that way, this is not your identity. This is just a an outcome of several decisions, which it's easy to learn mm-hmm. new decisions. Hopefully that right. frees them up too able to take a peek and, and take that first step. Another thing- I would thing, say too, go ahead. sorry, real quick, but, but also that you can change. But yeah. You have the opportunity to totally make a different choice on how you handle your money. And that may be uncomfortable. It may not be fun at first, but to know that always gives me hope that yeah. you always can wake up and have a different choice. And it may take you a little bit long to get out of the hole and that's okay. That's mm-hmm. your story. That's what's happened. But you have the opportunity to do something different. I love that. Love it. Another thing I loved about the book was the four types of childhood money classrooms that we all kind of grow up in, right? And uh, it's referring to, we mentioned earlier, but how we grow up shapes our view of money. So would you ever briefly touch on the four types of childhood money classrooms that we grew up in? Yes. Well, money is communicated in two ways in a household. So it's communicated verbally, obviously, but it's also communicated emotionally. So when I was writing the book, I was figure this out. And I was like, oh, I was like, it's a graph. I was like, oh, thank you, God. You gave me a quadrant. Like, this makes so much sense now. Yes. So it ends up being kind of these four money classrooms of this quadrant of, of how, how it's communicated. So that first quadrant is the anxious money classroom. And this is where it's emotionally stressed, but verbally closed. The money is not talked about, but you feel the stress. So if you grew up in this household, again, it's not really said I mean, you, you just feel the tension around decisions. It's so thick. There, exactly. Yes, yes. Classroom two is the unstable money classroom. And this is where it's verbally open, but emotionally stressed. So conflict, probably a lot of fighting. You heard, you heard it and it wasn't always great, but man, it, it was a little volatile even. Yeah. So it's kind of that unstable environment. Classroom three is the unaware money classroom. And this is where it's emotionally calm, but verbally closed. Mm-hmm. So- not talked about, but it's just not a thing. And if you grew up in this classroom, it's almost like you left home at 18 and you're like, oh, money, I got to, oh, I got to figure out money. You know, you never really never even thought about it. And then classroom four is definitely the healthiest money classroom, but it's the secure money classroom. And that's where it's verbally open and emotionally calm. So I tell people in this classroom, you don't have to have, you know, $10 million. Like it's not the amount of money, but it's the idea that the money is controlled. There's a plan around it. And that it's talked about, that it's not this topic that's taboo, but parents engage it in with each other and with the kids. It's interesting. So as, as I was listening to those, um, my wife, Lori, grew up in the mm-hmm. unstable, right? Always seeing fights over yes. money, losing a yep. home. It was traumatic, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It was definitely talked mm-hmm. about, yelled about, et cetera. Um, and then mm-hmm. I grew up, can you grow up in a hybrid in probably like an sure. anxious <laughs> slash, uh, yes. was unaware, was that the third one? I, anxious slash unaware? Yes. yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cause I think different seasons too, depending on stuff, you sure. shift that a little bit too. Very yep. much felt like seasons. Absolutely. Definitely. So yes. my question is, yes. and you kind of alluded to it, but is one classroom an advantage over the other ones? Or do all of them have their benefits and do all of them have their dangers? 
Well, in the book, I do unpack the good things about each one, things that you that you learn and that you're kind of aware of that maybe you wouldn't have learned if you were in a different classroom, but also the red flags with them. And they all have red flags. Um, but that fourth, I would say definitely is is kind of that core one that that is the best. But there's also red flags. I mean, and I, that's when I grew up in, I would say. Um, but with that comes a little bit of entitlement. You kind of just assume it's going to be easy. Yeah. It's easy for mom and dad. They're doing great. They're talking. Everything's fine. It's not an issue. It won't be an issue for me, which that's not true always. Uh, you know, there, there's there's things you have to realize even in that classroom for that you have that personal responsibility to to carry on. So, so yeah. So I think that there's different perspectives always. But the interesting thing too is talking to people. Some people just mirror exactly the classroom they grew up in. Kind of like all they know. They're like, yeah, you kind of just fight and bicker about money. And that's what you do. And that's what I do with my spouse. That's all I know. Or the opposite is true. They go to the opposite extreme where it's like, I don't want to engage in conversation because it ends up in a fight, right? Or whatever it may be. So so talking to people, it's interesting that they say their current, the way they're doing life now is either just like how they grew up or it's the absolute opposite. opposite. Yeah, that's interesting. Where does generosity fit in there in the four classrooms? So we talk a ton about generosity on this on this show. Yes. Um, is Does one of the classrooms tend to make someone more generous? Or is that nature or nurture, do you think? Oh gosh, um, I would say I would say a good bit in nature. I think there's a level of of generosity that people do not experience because they don't feel like they have the margin financially. So if you're in one of those stressed money classrooms emotionally, there there, there probably doesn't feel like there's anything to give. That's sure. how a lot of you're people probably going to hoard or hold that. on to it tight. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep, there's a level of security there that we have to have because everything else feels unstable. Um, so I, I don't, I wouldn't say it's a black and white thing, but I do think the more control there, what there is over money, mm-hmm. um, meaning a plan and, and knowing what's going on, I think frees up and allows more generosity to happen. That's really cool. Uh, sticking on this theme of generosity, when, when one is getting started financially, how do they know when it's time in their budget to start building this muscle of generosity? How do they know if they're being generous to a fault? Uh, I would say, well, just start now. Mm-hmm. I mean, we always encourage people, no matter where they are financially, is giving is at the top of your budget. Mm-hmm. Like your budget, it is number one. And and we encourage 10%. You can, you, you know, it's not legalistic. So you kind of do what you want. But I think no matter where you are, it is such an important muscle to build because the lie people believe about generosity is that if I just had more money, I would give. Right. And the thing about generosity is it's not a math problem. It's a heart problem. Yeah. So when you look at your, like, are you, Paying Comcast, but not giving, right? Like, I mean, like, wow. it, it really is. A, it's a priority issue. That question's a wake there, up call. <laughs> it is. And there, but the thing too is, 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 I hate to like persuade people to give, but I do. I, I want it so bad for people because it changes your life, and you know this, Chris. Yeah. The generosity, like, it is something that that not like money can't buy, and mm-hmm. and it sounds cliche, but it's just true. Like, yeah. we live in a selfish world, right? It is all about me. How I look, how I feel, what I want. Even our phones have cameras that point to (laughs) us to take pictures of ourselves, right? Like I'm like, we are obsessed with ourselves and what we want. And the moment you move on that spectrum from selfish to selfless, and you actually see people, you see their stories, you see what's going on, you see other people in the world, not just yourself, stuff starts unleashing in you. I mean, it, I think you become a better parent, a better spouse, a better friend, a better, a better, um, you know, employee, team member. Like, 
things just happen when you're selfless and you actually care and serve other people. And, and, and in a monetary way, being able to give money to do that, um, it just, it does something, it does something in your heart and your soul. I mean, it, it changes you. It really does. Yeah. I totally agree. It's, it's one of the best feelings on the planet. And I think it's implanted yeah. in us as one of the best feelings on the planet as a reason, right? So uh, where can we find the book? Where should everyone go buy the book? Yes. Uh, anywhere books are sold, it's everywhere. And also at rachelcruise.com. I love it. And where's the best place to follow you? Uh, I would say that. I have a podcast, The Rachel Cruz Show, and it's also on YouTube and all social media. I'm there. So you can check it out there. Definitely go check out The Rachel Cruz Show. Super great topics in there. So I'll wrap up with this question. Um, you've changed a lot of lives. And I mentioned it earlier, but our tagline is when good people make good money, they can do great things. What mm-hmm. is something great that you've been able to do for someone or for people in general now that you've experienced this level of success? I mean, there's some fun stories that my husband and I have been able to do that, you know, and I, and I won't go specific mm-hmm. with it, but there was someone we knew in their car just was, I mean, it was constant, con- like constantly in the shop. I mean, it was just like, and it was like, they just couldn't get a break. And once I was like, babe, let's just write an X amount of check and go buy them a car. Wow. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. And you did, and we did it, you know, I'm like, and we never would have been able to do that right. if we were doing other stuff with our money. Right. And so it's that I'm a spontaneous giver. I I've learned that about myself. I love. Same. I see a need. I'm like, to be able to fill, I'm like, oh, let's just do it. And Winston's a little bit more plans, but yeah. we've plans for generosity. <laughs> that makes it, or <laughs> no, for spontaneity. So you need to. It's fun, yeah, yeah. It's spontaneous. So, um, so being able to do that kind of stuff, oh man, it's just, and we say all the time, we're like, yeah, but, you know, spend an X amount there in that example versus like going and, I don't know, buying a few new TV or whatever. I don't know, fill in the blank. Yeah. It's just, it's different. It's so different. I agree. So, Nothing will make you feel better. It's awesome. It's amazing. Listen, Rachel, number one, thanks for being on the show. It means the world. I know how valuable your message is. I know how valuable your time is. Um, I would love to do a little mini act of generosity. And that is, I would love to give away a few of your books. So if let's do this. A random 20 listeners of everyone who tags you on Instagram with their biggest takeaway from this interview or from your book, whoever tags you on Instagram and myself so I can see them, uh, you're at Rachel Cruz. I'm at Chris W. Harder. Uh, we'll choose, I will choose uh, 20 of you and um, send you a book at at my own expense here just to get this book in more hands. Oh, thanks. Well, we'll send you some. We'll send you. Oh, no, no, no. There's, we, we're so so happy to buy them. But listen, just oh. that's the smallest token of, of what we can do as, as a thanks to your time and, and thanks for Love coming that. on and, and sharing all your, your greatness. Oh, thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Honestly, I so appreciate it. Totally my pleasure. Thanks for being on. Thanks for listening. And if you loved this episode and know of someone else who is as successful as they are generous, please pass them on to me. It would mean the world to me if you help me get this cause and this message out to as many listeners as I can. So please, if you liked what you heard, it goes a long way if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. I'll be forever grateful. And until the next episode, cheers to your success.